I'm Liz Gold, and you're listening to Conversations. Stories about strength, courage, and making it through. I'm glad you're here. Hello, hello, and welcome to Conversations. I'm your host, Liz Gold. I'm excited for today's show because I have Milo Raza here. And let me tell you a little bit about Milo. First of all, Milo and I are friends. We met through our mutual friend, Chaya. And we sort of hit it off immediately. At least that's what I remember. Maybe it'll say something different. <laughs> Later on, I started working with Milo, doing some coaching for my business and more sort of deep-rooted things that I needed to really tackle in order to put myself out there in the world. So Milo and I have worked together in a couple of different capacities. And he now has a company called Even Braver. And Milo coaches to increase the power, freedom, and choice of individuals and organizations so they can convert intention to action to impact more effectively, consistently, and easily. So Milo's a coach, if I had made myself clear before. (laughs) He is unafraid to push back, and I know that about him, call out bullshit when he hears it, and be frank and direct for the sake of serving his clients. He is a dynamic partner in moving you through or his clients through their internal resistance and guiding his clients to see what is in their blind spots. So an outsider to mainstream coaching, his words, not mine, Milo brings a combination of irrelevance, irreverence, (laughs) (laughs) irreverence, humor, compassion, and encouragement to support his clients' continued growth. Raised in Washington, D.C., Milo earned a B.A. in semiotics and critical thinking at Bryn Mawr College. He draws on his experience with the Coaches Training Institute, whitewater raft guiding, nonprofit management, owning a small business, and other influences. He has served clients across numerous industries in more than 12 years of coaching. He's trans, genderqueer, and black mixed race and acknowledges the impact of systems of oppression in his coaching with clients, but never at the expense of ultimately focusing on his client's path forward. With that, welcome to the show, Milo. Thank you so much, Liz. I hope I won't be too irrelevant (laughs) today, but thanks so much for having me on. I was like, should we edit that out? But now I don't think we're going to do that. I think we're going to like let it roll. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm really happy that you're here. And you know, I know when I asked you to be on the show, you wrote me back this email, or maybe you told me, I think we had a call and you were like, yeah, I actually had a response to that. So can you tell us what that response was when I asked you to be on a show about courage, strength and resiliency? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. You know, it's funny because I think what I said at the time was, you know, I'm a person with lots of opinions and I somehow went blank with that prompt. (laughs) And it's kind of funny because in a lot of ways, the coaching I do is almost, in some respects, it's almost exclusively about courage Mm -hmm. and about supporting people in being courageous. And yet, I think the reason I went blank is just, I think there's a cultural conversation about strength, courage, and resilience that makes all those a one-person inside job. Hmm. That courage is something that is true about an individual, like a person is courageous or they are not, or they need to build their courage. Like what happens when you're alone in the dark, as opposed to the way I think courage works for a lot of us, which is that it's very much connected to context and it's very much connected to community. 
yeah, so it was just interesting to notice that I went right to that place of the kind of individualism that I think a lot of the cultural conversation about these things points to. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that, like how it really is more about the collective and community rather than the individual. Like I would love to hear more about that perspective. Yeah, well, I think it's sort of, it's both, you know, it's both of those things, right? Because if you're only courageous when there are other people standing behind you, (laughs) there are lots of situations that's not going to work out too good for you. But I think the idea that, you know, we get courage and we can become more courageous and we can become stronger and we can become more resilient in company and in community, that idea gets lost. Sort of like, it's almost like there's a sense of personal character being able to be strengthened by sort of analogously to working out in a gym. Like if you don't lift the weight by yourself, you're not getting stronger Mm. in a gym. You know, you have to be the one to lift the weight. But there is something that happens when we see other people take a stand or we see other people being who they are, or we see other people get up and dust themselves off when they've fallen down or failed in some spectacular and magnificent way that can be encouraging for us. And similarly, I think there's something about knowing where you belong and knowing that you belong in some way, somewhere, that can sort of help give some of that foundation for the strength and courage and resilience that is so much a part of what people are talking about now, that it's not just as an individual, you just got to be strong. I feel like a couple of years ago, there was this whole conversation about grit and who had it and and who didn't and how to get it. And and it just all seemed to focus on like, you got, you know, suck it up, buttercup, (laughs) right? Right. As opposed to ever giving us access to any kind of support, whether that's a coach or whether that's, you know, whoever your loved ones are. But that idea that like we can gain strength and gain courage and have our resilience supported by other people around us as well. Yeah, I I love that. And I think it's also incremental because when you were talking, I was thinking about, I mean, I was listening, but I was also thinking about how I work out at this CrossFit gym. And I literally just wrote a blog post about this and about how I was like learning how to do pull-ups. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to know how to do this. Like, There's no way I can get my body up there. But my coach, she was like, no, you're trying it. And so I got up, I climbed up on the box, I put my feet into this like, giant like rubber bands, multiple Mm -hmm. of them. And she like helped lift my body and I was pulling up and I did it. I did a pull up. I did multiple pull ups. So I think, you know, while you're saying like we have to lift the weight ourselves, I also think there's help in that. And which I think you're also saying is that there's community to sort of help you gain strength, gain courage, gain resiliency. And so while you have to, you know, take the initiative and be accountable and do the action, there's also all people to help assist you in that process. Right. Yeah. It's like it's not a black and white thing. And right. similarly, I think it's not black and white what takes courage and what doesn't take courage. I think that's very dramatically from person to person. Several months ago, I was having a conversation with a friend. We'd had some difficulty and I had reached out to have a conversation to get to the completion on that challenge that we'd had. And in the course of that conversation, this person was like, oh, you know, that's so courageous of you to reach out to me. And to me, that doesn't take courage. Mm. That just is not a place where I feel like I need courage. I wanted to get that conversation so that we could get to completion. That was something I actively wanted and just wasn't that scary. 
And yet there are other things that can be really scary for me, certainly being in business for myself for 12 years. And I think you can appreciate this too, like yeah. a little bit like boot camp for whatever your issues are, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. whatever is hardest for you is the thing you're going to have to tackle to be, you know, successful in your own business. And for me, there have been moments where the direction of my business has changed and I've, I could feel the adrenaline coursing through my, my veins as I considered some new direction. So yeah, what takes courage really varies. Yeah. And I think it takes a lot of courage to recognize that your business is pivoting or it needs to change. And I mean, certainly it's not for the weak of heart to follow that because I feel like once the cat's out of the bag, so to speak, and you realize something, it's like you can choose not to act on it and just get swallowed up by anxiety or you can act on it and have a different type of anxiety, you know? <laughs> so it's just, yeah, I hear you on that. And I would love to hear more about, you know, your internal process around, you know, how you decided to pivot and what's that, what that's been like for you. Yeah. Well, just to offer a little bit of context. So for about 10 years, I had been coaching under the business name Being Daring Coaching. And what I realized, I would say probably around a year ago, I realized that that just didn't fit me anymore. Mm. I mean, I still believe that how you're being feeds into how you're daring and that how you're daring feeds into how you're being. I still believe in that. The moment that I came up with that name and that brand, I was trying to really professionalize. Mm -hmm. And I think in the background, I was holding this belief that I needed to be someone different than who I am in some kind of way, even if it's just that I needed to button up. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt like I had to do, be different than I am in order to be successful. And it was just starting to feel, they were starting to feel some friction for me around that. And I started to realize I need to kind of create a brand that's more me. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as you know, Liz, like when I coach, I am really 100% just trying to be of service, not trying to please my clients, but trying to serve them. And part of that irreverence that I bring is like, I swear like a sailor left to my own <laughs> devices. I'm trying not to swear too much on this call, but you can. Um, <laughs> it's fine. No, I'm producing this. <laughs> Do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but like I swear a lot and the, the kind of branding that I had around being daring, I didn't think really supported that. Yeah. And, and not that that's the most important thing about me. I'm very forthright about what you see is what you get with me pretty much. And I wanted a brand that really reflected that. And they even braver the, the concept that the growth for all of us lies in being just even braver than we were yesterday. Mm. I'm not going to define what that is for you, just like you can't define what that is for me. But I think that in that way that growth flies outside our sphere of comfort, that's where our bravery gets called on. And sometimes brave to swing out and make more money, try to make more money. It's also brave to swing in and offer not to be of help to a loved one who's asking for your help. You know, just depending on patterns you're used to and what's working and what's not working for you. So I really wanted to make that invitation like, hey, let's all be even braver together. Right. So that's why I decided to pivot. And for me, it's kind of this interesting thing happened where in the middle of that pivot, I spoke with this coach and I was telling him what kind of work I'd been doing. And he made a suggestion. It really is just shifting the emphasis in what I'm doing. So, but it, 
totally put my eyes into little saucers of adrenaline hijack. Like, so what I do is I do the one-on-one leadership coaching. And with some of my clients, uh, you know, for clients who want it, I've been doing one-on-one in-person intensives. Mm-hmm. And each, each of those intensives is designed to create an embodied experience of what that person is working on. Mm-hmm. So, for example, recently I was working with someone around being non-defensive and different ways of dealing with basically being attacked or feeling like being attacked. And so one of the things we did in the intensive that I created is we actually did three days of Aikido classes. Really? Aikido, yeah, yeah, it was super. I was like, it was amazing. Aikido is a martial art that yeah. is all about harnessing your attacker's energy and using that in your defense rather than sort of like in something like karate. If someone, you know, throws a punch at you, you block them with an equal and opposite force. Mm-hmm. In Aikido, you would actually find a way to keep moving them in the direction their punch is taking them in the first place. Wow. So it's, it's not about like stopping the punch. It's actually about bringing that punch through in a way. So that's just like a little glimpse of the kind of stuff I do in the one-on-one intensives. And what we do changes depending on what someone's uh, working sure. on. So anyway, this guy suggested, hey, do much more of that. And don't worry so much about getting a bunch of clients for one-on-one coaching, but do more intensives. And for some reason, that just like went right to the old class stuff I have about money, some race mm-hmm. stuff about money too, I think. Mm-hmm. But that's the direction I'm going now. So really shifting the focus to do more one-on-one intensives with one-on-one coaching, supporting that, but really focusing more on developing that part of the business that's the intensives. Wow, that is very exciting. The one-on-one intensives, they're in person, right? They're so in person. That's like a whole different ball game, you know, because yeah. now you're showing up to the space. You're creating a space. You're like eye to eye with your client, which is, you know, video allows that too, but not the same as being in person. So that just in itself, what would, how has that transition been for you? I mean, did that feel easy? Was it exciting? Do you, were you like terrified? No, you know, I coached with people in person before and I enjoy it. It's yeah. just not practical for most of the folks yes. that I coach for, you know, coach with. But I love being in person with folks and I love being in person over time. So it's not just like dropping in for an hour and then dropping out. So, you know, like the intensives that I really enjoy doing are three-day intensives. Mm-hmm. And we'll do different activities across the three days, but definitely not a retreat. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. it's called an intensive for a reason and I need right. to recover after we do them. But it is, it's sort of like creating this crucible moment an embodied experience that allows folks to process the transition that they're entering or going through in a different way than just thinking about it mm-hmm. or just talking oh, yeah. about it. You know, you can feel it when you're moving someone else's energy through Aikido yeah. or another client I took out on a boat and we just had this amazing experience around leadership actually about who would drive the boat and how fast would this client be willing to drive the boat. And, and you know, I had to really push her, but when we went really fast, this whole aspect of delight opened up in this conversation about leadership. That conversation about delight was not going to happen by hammering away on intellectual concepts of leadership. Right. That is so cool. Yeah. It's amazing work and it's been amazing to see the difference it's made with with clients. And it's also challenging to talk about changing something that's been working. 
Right. You know, I've been doing fine with the one-on-one coaching. So the shift for me requires some courage and requires kind of swinging out into territory that I've avoided. <laughs> yeah. So I know yeah. this feeling. So uh, let me just ask you this about the Aikido experience because I think that's really interesting. So you were working with a client who wanted to work around defensiveness. And so how did you determine that Aikido would be the right place to do that? Like, how did you even come up with that concept? And then can you tie in what the learning was with Aikido with how you sort of coached your client with defensiveness? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, in terms of how I came up with that idea, I trust my instincts on it Mm -hmm. and I trust my intuition on it. And one of the things to know about me is I am what a lot of people call a generalist. So I have a like very, very broad knowledge base but it's also incredibly shallow. (laughs) In a lot of situations, that would be a disadvantage. If you're in a field where you need to be an expert in subject matter, that's a disadvantage, but I'm not. And having that broad base of knowledge allows me to think essentially metaphorically all the time. Mm. So I don't even remember the first person to mention Aikido to me. It might've been my brother when I was like still in my teens. And the concept of using your opponent's energy And at some point, I took one class at the Y in Oakland. It didn't make a big impression on me. But but for some reason, when we were talking about this, like, you know, dealing with attack or or defending and and non-resistance, then it just popped in my mind. And so I started looking for, you know, who are the experts who I could have teach us, you know, Aikido, and then we could go from there. So really, it's that asset of being a generalist, of having that broad base of knowledge in a bunch of different areas, even while that knowledge is not very deep, that is a source for me. The question about like, what did we learn in that is, it was full of surprises, to be honest. There's so much about Aikido, it can be really rich. One of the things is that staying connected is really important and being willing to go in the direction that the energy is going instead of fighting the energy, is to, to go in the direction it's going. It's kind of hard to put into words. Yeah. I just had this experience last week, so it's still kind of filtering Oh, wow. In. But it is very much about noticing what's coming toward me, not reacting right away. Mm. So noticing what's coming toward me, noticing where it wants to go, sort of almost like what it wants is what I would say in terms of translating it into a, if there were a verbal argument or something like that going on, sort of like noticing what are the concerns, what's it want, what's it driving toward, and seeing what the need is there. So as I'm talking to you, I'm even just like kind of moving my hands across my body constantly, mm-hmm. just as if there were someone bringing some sort of physical attack toward me and then just kind of moving it past me. Also that you have to keep that connection. You have to yeah. stay connected in order to know what's happening with that energy. It can't just be like, well, screw you, you know, because the moment that you enter that disconnect, you lose options. Yeah. Fascinating. It's very difficult to put into words, but it's very fascinating. Yeah. I I love that because, you know, the whole concept of staying connected, and this is sort of my interpretation of it, but like feeling the energy that's coming towards you, holding that energy, and then moving forward with that energy in the direction that you're being led. I mean, I love martial arts for this, you know, and I think like that makes so much sense because I feel like a lot of people when they're attacked or there's defensiveness, they just stonewall or they walk away 
where they lash out. And so what a lesson in sort of energy management and also like being able to hold space and being in your body, feeling sort of the conflict and the energy coming towards you. That's so cool. That sounds amazing. It was like my mind is still blown. Yeah. You know, ideally you don't actually absorb that attack. You know, I'm not saying that we need to sit in the midst of unacceptable behavior. I I would never argue that. But it is interesting to have more options Mm -hmm. in situations that we're accustomed to just reacting. Mm -hmm. If I'm in reaction mode, then I'm disempowered. Yeah. You know, I'm just then you have the remote control to make me do whatever it is I do. But you've got the remote control if I'm just reacting to you. Right. So having sort of slowing it down and realizing that timed to the right moment, I can move things in the direction that that I want them to go. It's just not a matter of being rigidly wedded to a plan about pushing back. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. That's great. That's so cool. And, you know, I just want to say a comment about the generalist piece because I think generalists get a bad rap. You know, I, I feel like I've been in a lot of environments where It's like niche, you know, you have to have a niche. You have to have an, I say it niche, if you can call it niche, (laughs) whatever, tomato, tomato, I don't care. But like, (laughs) I feel like you have to have a niche. That's how you build up a platform. That's how you get clients. You have to be very specific. And I, you know, I'm not debating that, but I think generalists sort of get a bad rap or they just get dismissed. And I think I would consider myself a generalist too, even though I have experience in a certain industry, whatnot. But I, I think... Yeah, like power to the generalists. Thanks. I think that's my little spiel about that. Yeah, I totally agree. And a lot of times I talk to people who are generalists or use that word generalist. Yeah. And it's, it just almost sounds pejorative the way that people wield it. I'm yeah. not saying I'm. this is not part of an anti-science rant. I'm not. That's not what this <laughs> is. But there's this way that expertise gets so sort of vaunted and celebrated. Yeah. And yet one of the problems that experts run into often is that they become siloed and then lose sight of the web of impacts or the web of implications. And one of the advantages of being a generalist or lateral thinker or having a broad knowledge base is that a lot of times we can see the broader picture of impact Mm -hmm. and of the connections that a subject matter expert can't see outside of that silo of their subject matter expertise. Yes. Yes. No, neither one is better than the other. I think most large scale endeavors take a combination of both. Like I, I want whoever is like configuring my server to have some pretty deep knowledge in how to configure right. a server. Right. But I want my marketing person to have perhaps a broader understanding of the different kinds of people who might be interested in doing whatever it is I'm trying to market. So mm-hmm. I, I think the idea that there can be many different ways of being and ways of doing work and they can be equally valuable is great. And I, I, I completely agree that generalists have a bad rap and most generalists take that bad rap super duper to heart. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you just said. So I feel like I could go in a million different directions right now with this conversation. So I'm interested in talking to you about I mean, a lot of things, because I feel like I could do for a long time. But, you know, you had mentioned that having a business sort of like brings out all of the issues. You said it in such a more eloquent way, like brings out all of the issues that you need to work on. And I 
so agree with that, as you know. And I'm just curious, would you be willing to share one of those issues or one of those challenges? Maybe not issues because issues is such a weird word, but like, you know, one of the challenges that you had to overcome in your own business as a coach, because, you know, being a coach is, I wouldn't say easy to do, it might be a natural thing to do, but it's that you're guiding people, you know, there's importance in that. So what do you feel willing to share around that? Oh, sure. Yeah. For me, the hardest part of the business has always been around money and value. Mm -hmm. And just in terms of sort of my political background, my sort of class background, place where all of that stuff meets Mm -hmm. has been, and I think will continue to be sort of boot camp for me. And what I mean by that is just that whatever assumptions, it's one of the places where I'm going to run into my limits. Mm-hmm. And where I have run into my limits and where some of the, the sort of the limitations of the ways that I've been thinking need to change if this is in fact how I'm going to support myself. So as you mentioned, like coaching is, you know, I mean, coaching is good work. Mm-hmm. I, I feel coaching is good work. I have seen the difference it's made in clients' lives where people have been banging their heads up against something and they're able to turn a corner that they may not even have realized was right there. So given that it's like that I think of it as, I don't want to say a helping profession, but Mm -hmm. certainly helpful, right? Let's just say it's a good thing. So how do I charge for that? Yeah. Okay. So I'm a lefty. I don't mean left-handed. I mean like (laughs) left-leaning politically. You know, I'm a do-gooder. I come out of a very political, social, social activist family. So, you know, in my family... Part of what I got out of my family, and I'm not laying the blame at any one person's feet about this, but part of what I got out of my family was like sort of rich people are bad, you know, Mm. like the only way to get money is by screwing somebody. Mm. That's harsh. That's harsh. (laughs) I mean, I, you know, I'm putting a pretty fine point on it for effect, but honestly, like that's part of what I came out with, you know? Um, And for years after I graduated from a fancy pants college, I thought I'm only going to make $10 an hour. Partly because corporate America was not an option, because mm-hmm. in my way of thinking at the time, you know, corporations are evil. Right. And second was at the time, I would have had to perform female gendered role, including wearing a skirt to be a part of corporate America, because that's yeah. how old I am. And that for me would have been soul crushing. Right. So to me, like I had it like I'm only ever going to make $10 an hour. And that's what I did for many years after college. But Then fast forward to being in my own business, I'm doing this work that is clearly helpful to people. What do you charge for that? Right. How do I charge enough that I get to have a reasonable standard of living or a standard of living that I think I can enjoy and I still get to work with some of the people I want to work with? So there's been like an evolution for me in that, both in terms of dismantling some of that, thinking about what it means when people have money what it means about them, which often is not very much. (laughs) Certainly, I've come to appreciate, even before I started working for myself, I, through a variety of experiences, came to appreciate that even people who seem to have all the advantages have problems Mm -hmm. and have challenges. Like Almost everybody is wrestling with something. Mm -hmm. But I've had to work on that. And I remember distinctly early on in my coaching, I realized that I was... Um, you know, my clients were having these huge breakthroughs, like life-changing breakthroughs, literally. And then I was still like, okay, so how am I going to pay next month's rent? Right, (laughs) right. 
you know, and at the point where I realized like, hey, I'm subsidizing these people's transformation. And then I realized I was starting to get resentful about it. I was like, oh, time to change your rates, buddy, you know. So that's one of the places where it's been an evolution. And I imagine that what will happen is that I will continue to level up and will then need to level up again as I continue to go forward. But but yeah, that's been one of the places where there's been a whole lot of material or luggage to unpack. And being in business, there's just no way around it, you know. Yeah, pricing is very hard. I, I struggle with that too. I mean, I think for some people, it's very clear and easy. But for a lot of other people, when you're in your own business, especially sort of like a more service-based business, I think it can be very hard to capture the the value, like, because the value is so much more than the actual amount that you're getting, you know, so it's, it's, but you still need to come up with an amount or a rate that feels like you're being valued and that your needs are taken care of and that, so you don't end up feeling resentful. And so I think maybe it would be helpful to tell people what kind of clients you work with, because you do work with a lot of people who are in corporate setting who probably have money that can pay for this. And so, I mean, maybe that hasn't always been the case. I don't think that's true for all of your clients, but maybe just tell us a little bit about the clients you work with. And then I'll share one of my biggest struggles because you shared yours. Sure. Yeah. Well, first, let me say one other thing, which is that I think pricing is hard depending on what we make it mean. Yeah. And depending on the stories we're telling ourselves about pricing. Mm-hmm. In my experience is like, it doesn't have to be anywhere near as hard as it was when I first started out mm-hmm. because of the stories that I have around it and the frame that I hold it in is really different. And I often, you know, will work with clients around that too. Like, what is your story about money? How can we transition that to enable you to live the kind of life you want to live and do the kind of work you want to do? So, and part of that is not making up too many stories about who has money and who doesn't. Um, right now, the bulk of my clientele, sort of by coincidence, is folks who are in sort of social impact work or mm-hmm. nonprofit leadership development programs. I do, for me, the kind of client I work with is much more of a psychographic than a demographic. Mm-hmm. So for sure, I work with a lot of people who are pretty much older than 26 or 27 a lot of women, a lot of queer identified folks, a lot of lefties. Mm-hmm. All of those are the you know, demographics that are really common. Yeah. But more than anything, it's that I work really well with people who are intensely committed to turning a corner. And I almost don't even care what the corner is. I mean, I do. If you're trying to turn the corner of figuring out how to be the top fundraiser for Trump's reelection, <laughs> I'm not the coach for you. You you're know. Right. But it's that commitment that is is most important. And I end up working with them, especially around sort of self-leadership and authentic leadership and wielding of sort of appropriate, finding the, the place of sort of rightness uh, for wielding the power and authority that they do have. Mm-hmm. So, and then the courage piece, you know, that's who I work with. And, and I love it. I love it. I don't care, you know, I don't have like demographics that I don't work with, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I forget the second half of what you asked me now. I think you covered it. I mean, I just about your clients and who you work with. And that makes sense. And just and for the record, just because you are in corporate does not necessarily mean you have money to spend on coaching. 
I think the money piece is really is really key and really important. So thank you for sharing that and articulating that. I mean, when we worked together, I think we really chipped away at one of my biggest struggles, which is allowing myself to put myself out there and really follow through with creative projects that I've been wanting to do that are tied into my business and really work to get in alignment with my personal values and the clients that I'm working with. Because I was looking at some of the notes that I took from last year, I think it was last year that we worked together. And it's like some of those things are still in progress. And doing this podcast, it was like terrifying to do. And so to put yourself out there, for me to put myself out there and to let people read my stuff and hear my voice and like hear my thoughts, it has been such a journey to get there. I mean, at this point, I'm just like, this is what I'm doing. It's fun. It's calling me. I'm, and, you know, I have been published since I was six years old. I've been published in various publications. And so it's not something that is new to me. It's something that has been sort of always there. So, and I think your coaching really helped me get clear on what my priorities were and to dig into some of that fear and break it down. So, powerful stuff. You know, I appreciate I'm it. so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a totally different thing to swing out into that space yeah. of this is the thing I really want, or this is the thing I really care about, or what I really want to be saying. Yeah. You know, that is, I think for a lot of people, you know, and a lot of people who come into coaching, they often will ask me like, what's realistic to expect from this? What's a realistic goal for me? And I'm like, why bother with that? Because mm-hmm. often the realistic goal is a way of hemming in what you really want before you even start talking about the full picture of what you really want. And I think, you know, you've got a thousand opportunities to compromise when logistics and so forth come up later on, but let's at least start off with what you actually think you want. Mm-hmm. And that for a lot of people is sort of scary because a lot of us have taken that tack of learning how to try to not want something so that we're not disappointed. And then when somebody asks, what do you really want? There's kind of like people go blank. Right. So there's a courage even just admitting how much you want something and then to actually swing out and, and go for it can be all the scarier too. Yeah. I mean, I think in my experience, it's sort of easy to easier to admit to what you think you can have mm-hmm. than what you actually want, you know, and yeah. there is a big difference there because it's like, okay, I think I can have X, Y, and Z clients in this industry and, you know, but is that really what I want? No, actually. And sometimes I feel like it's easier, like for me, like I actually do have like a vision of what I want. And so I think it's like, okay, but how do I get there? And I think it, it's been the process of looking at how do I want to live my life on the day to day? Like, what's important to me? What are my values? What makes me feel good? And then sort of like backing up from there to sort of figure out how to get there. It's not easy. I think admitting your desires about your life, like, you know, I think we talk about that as a culture, but I don't think we really allow that in some way. Like, I think we're all kind of taught to settle. And maybe that's like a blanket statement, but just to take what is in front of us or what we think we might be able to have. Yeah, well, I think you're right. I, I think that the, our expectations are sort of circumscribed or conscribed. I, I'm, not, can't, I'm not finding the right word there, but are sort of prescribed 
in a lot of ways. I think conformity is one of the forces in our society. That's why we need so much courage. And I feel lucky because I was a weirdo Mm -hmm. as a kid. I mean, I still am a weirdo. People don't can't tell as much when they first meet me. But as a kid, like I was super weirdo, you know, it was like the 70s and the 80s. And I was very gender ambiguous gender, you know, I was androgynous Mm -hmm. before it was cool, (laughs) you know, and not as like a statement. It's just kind of like how I was. And I knew I didn't fit in anywhere. Mm. And I knew I was a weirdo. And, and so kind of seeking the the approval of belonging, like, I can't imagine what it must have been like to grow up as a popular, socially accepted, like part of a big group of like tight friends. Don't get me wrong, like there's a part of me that wanted that. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I got from not having that is that I don't have to look at the rest of the ducks to see which way I want to swim. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, y'all yeah. know where you're going to go. I'm pretty sure I know I want to, you know, I'm going to go this way. And I know that I might catch some hell over here, but I also know it's the direction I want to go. That fear of losing the approval of the tribe is, I think, in some ways, for especially for queer people, this is probably truer when I was younger than it is now, but we had to decide for ourselves what our lives would look like. We didn't get to just borrow a template and stamp it on and go, oh yeah, okay, so of course, these are the major events that will happen in my life. This is what life is going to look like. We had to create that for ourselves. We had to create family, a lot of us. And even those of us who didn't, like my family of origin is incredibly supportive. So I didn't have to create family from scratch for that reason, but I also saw lots of people around me in queer community creating family. And so if I can create family, what can I not create? Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of courage to not conform, courage to go in the direction of what's workable for me and my life and for the contribution that I want to be, the impact that I want to have. That is, I think, part of what people look for, at least when they come to me for coaching. You know, and I'm not like a productivity hack, tips and tricks guy. You know, like, like people come to me for that self-leadership, leadership of others stuff. And so I think that that piece about how can I be that is in alignment with my values and how can I be that's going to be effective in creating the impact that I want to create, whether it's with my partner or whether it's with my organization or company, like those kinds of questions are the kinds of things that the people I work with wrestle with and resolve. And I think that navigating conformity is a big part of that kind of in the background. Wow. Yeah. I never really thought about that piece. I think that's really interesting because I personally have always tried to conform, even though I am not conformable. <laughs> like, I mean, I was born with a birthmark on my face, you know, like I, I was just like outside from the very beginning, I felt like. And so I think that like, and as I grew up, I realized there was a template for me and I tried to fit into it and could not. And it was just like, I remember having a meltdown when I was like 21. I went to a big Jewish wedding on Long Island. It was very fancy. It had a vodka (laughs) rouge. And (laughs) And I think I was 21. I was young. Like I was in my 20s. And I remember just bawling at one of the tables, like realizing that I was never going to have this. Like I was never going to have this. And I don't know why I thought that I was never going to have it or didn't think I could have it or whatever. But I knew that this road was not for me. And it was like, I had so much grief about that. So I think what you're saying about conformity is really interesting. Even when we choose our careers, it's like, 
there's, you can be a business owner or you can like be a professional or work in the trades or whatever. It's like, it's like, I don't personally, like at some point I realized like it was recent actually, because I was like, should I go back full time and get a job so I can actually like have a life again, you know, like, and have like pursuits outside of work and stop hustling. And the idea of like, going into that environment, a pretty strict 8.30 to 5 job and like everything that I would have to change about my life to do that for a salary that was decent, whatever, not exciting, but and benefits, I was just like, I don't think I can do that. Like I'd rather face, <laughs> and here we go, I'm outing myself, but I'd rather face like financial uncertainty and not know like the direction of where my business is going than to do that. And, and I luckily enough have the choice to do that. I know some people don't. And so I, I relate that to my own privilege. But I feel like that was a really important decision for me because I was like, I can't, this is not how I want to do work. Like, this is not how I want to make a living. This is not how I want to relate to people in a work environment. And it was kind of like, I mean, I knew that, but I think I had to go through like a whole process around actually making that a viable choice for me to really stand behind what I'm trying to do. And I just went off on a tangent. So I think I <laughs> left the original <laughs> statement yeah, that we are talking about. Yeah, but I, but I hear you talking very inten- about a very intentionally choosing how you want to do work. Right. And, and I think it's possible to choose how you want to do work and then look for unexpected ways that you could do that. So there may be some job out there that you could take that would allow you to do work the way you want to do work. Correct. I don't know, but there's something about actually taking that, looking for that creative gray that is, uh, feels a little bit like a lost art a lot of the time Mm -hmm. as we get convinced, you know, like as we get so kind of enthralled to the idea that things are either black or white, like either you have your own business and, or you work for someone else and it sucks. (laughs) Yeah. But might there be somewhere in between those two that is actually more than you could have hoped for. Yeah. And I'm certainly open to that. And, you know, I feel like as I get older, like in my 40s, like I'm a lot more discerning about where I want to put my energy and where I want to put my skills and talents and experience. And I am certainly open to like working for a company where, you know, my values would align and it felt good. But Mm -hmm. I guess I've been in so many different experiences where it doesn't feel good. (laughs) So I've just like kept on the road that I've been on, but I'm certainly open to that. And I think you're right. Like I think the creative gray is very necessary and it's a place that I don't necessarily dwell in. I I typically am like black and white and I'm like, oh, maybe I should discuss this in therapy, black and white thinking, great. You know, but really like the gray is where I think we can actually be more embodied. Yeah, and let's not even talk about like, you know, the reds, the blues, the purples. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll save that for another that, time. That would be too much. That would be too much. <laughs> no. So, I mean, no, this has been fantastic, Milo. I really appreciate this conversation. And, you know, I mean, so what is next for you? Like, how can, how can people follow along with your journey or get in touch yeah. with you for potential yeah. coaching? Yeah, if people want to get in touch, you're always welcome to contact me through my website at evenbraver dot com e v e n b r a v e r dot com or you can email me at milo at evenbraver dot com and I'll be happy to be in touch that way. I'm not set up on social media because I am not a big social media guy, mm-hmm. but at some point I may 
start doing that again, but I make no promises. <laughs> <laughs> yep. There you go. So great. Well, thank you so much, Milo, for being here. It was awesome to talk to you as always. And if you're interested in learning more about Milo, go visit his website or drop him an email. So thank you so much. Liz, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Conversations is produced by Rhino Girl Media, a communications consulting company. To advance or evolve your next communications project, check out my website, rhinogirlmedia.com, or contact me at liz at rhinogirlmedia.com. You can always follow me on Instagram at Liz Stacy Gold. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review, share it, or send me some love. Thanks for listening. Until next time.